welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome along, everybody, to this week's episode of the Bro Novo Podcast. It's your host here, Thomas Pierce. We are here every Thursday to model healthy communication for men. Today's a fun one. We're going to look back on the year that was and look back on 10 moments from different episodes throughout this year. I really enjoyed all the conversations I had, but I feel like these in some way struck me as capturing the essence of what we are creating here with the podcast. So I thought they deserved a special shout out. And it's always nice to incorporate a bit of reflection, a bit of looking back, a bit of celebration on what we created and I think that's definitely something that has been echoed on the conversations this year, right? Taking a moment to, you know, appreciate the work we've done, what we accomplished last year before we dive into the, the next venture. So that's exactly what I'm doing. First up here, we have from episode one, Mel talking about her experiences as a young professional in a hospital in New York City, how she was sexualized and felt minimized by some of the senior physicians uh, in, a, in a very brief moment in the elevator, but obviously it made an impact on her. And then she also t- talks about how men of privilege can do something to lend a hand, lend a voice, lend an ear uh, to people, particularly women or marginalized people who don't normally have a seat at the table, some things that they can do, we can do, uh, who, those of us who fit into that privileged male bracket about it. So from episode one, here we go. Here's Mel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't really know. Yes. In fact, I'll tell you a story of my first job at hospice in uh, New York. I was working in an inpatient hospice in a hospital. And this nurse was showing me around the hospital and I got in the elevator and it was her and I and three doctors all in white coats, older men. And this is when I first became a social worker, uh, right? And end of life. And the first thing before I was introduced to them, because the nurse knew the three doctors in the, in the elevator happened to be, I think they were all oncologists or something. One of them said, while looking at my breast and up and down, oh, you must be a new one. Jesus Christ. And I was like, first of all, I'm in this closed quarters in this small elevator. My first job in a wonderful hospital in New York City. And the first thing I get is totally sexualized and then kind of stripped with his eyes and like the the other two men are sort of agreeing with him and I've been minimized insulted embarrassed humiliated and then had this other woman look at me like oh you're going to be trouble because obviously you're giving off something so then I was blamed right Right. she was like what did you do and I was like what did I do I mean you're standing right here so all of that comes into play as you're also trying to, yeah, so that was like, I got blank, you know, all these levels of like, so shit. many levels, so many bullshit, so much bullshit. And at the same time, I've told you, Thomas, and I, we talked about this, that the reality is that most men have to know that every woman you come in contact with has either been sexually abused, verbally abused, threatened, has had some form of sexualization that has made them feel threatened. And any woman you've met, you meet, or, or teenager, 
has experienced it already. And so even in that exchange where I was with another woman and it was in public, I still felt once again, taken, something was taken from me. And it chips away. It's like, you know, we talk about the little nicks and cuts. Um, And so even when you're joking or you're, you have to be really mindful of speaking to people. You talked about the packet, like the backpack. We, those are facts. All women have experienced something, some point in their life where they felt intimidated sexually or, you know, or actually abused and have a story or multiple stories. And so be mindful of that when you interact with them, when you stand next to them, when you come into their space, especially in a work environment, because um, it triggers. And I don't care how much work you do as a woman, you know, working through those things, it can still trigger it. Um, Where I think I spent like three weeks not getting on the elevator on the oncology area. That's how bad it was for me, where I literally stayed in the hospice inpatient floor because I was afraid of what else would happen. Thank you for kind of walking through all of that. And there's so much there to, to, to unpack and oh, I mean, talk about complicated. The other one that jumps out at me is around how the intra intra female dynamics, right. Of like, in that yeah. example, the other woman, in the elevator is now has, you know, you have a target on your back now to right. her eyes. And that's because of the structures and how the men are treating you. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. such a, such a mind, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh my God. She was probably thinking like, great. Now they're not going to take us seriously. And these oncologists are going to like, we've both been our self-worth and all of our education has been minimized to sexual being sexualized in this one second, you know, comment that maybe he was not really like that, but, or maybe he was trying to show off to his friends or whatever it was. They weren't young men. They were older men. Um, and, and I, I don't want to chop it up to generations, but I will say what I have taken away just talking with you on this. It's interesting. The process this is probably why people go to therapy, hmm. mm-hmm. but I think why my father was different was that he was not just raised by women and his sisters, but his mentors and the people like his mentors and his role models in his older years and education and in career were women and women of color. Um, So what I guess I would impart is that I urge all men to find women to be their role models, their mentors, to see, to, to ask questions, to listen, but ask more to understand and confirm and reaffirm what you hear when someone's telling you a story or talking to you, because we do speak very different languages and generations and, you know, our backgrounds and our ethnicity and everything else comes into play. If you don't really understand, ask again or ask for clarification, um, because then we're bridging that gap. Right. And you're with the upper hand as a white male. um, When you when you open your mind and your door and your heart to listening, you're also kind of making someone like myself feel heard when we're not when we normally walk through the day not feeling heard um, in general. 
from episode three, we have my coach Danny talking about the impact of gay rugby. Right. And I think that's the beauty of the team and how you can affect a change, whether it's significant or insignificant, you are affecting a change. And so sometimes uh, people are like, well, maybe coach, why, why don't you coach another team? Because you have that skill set, right? Mm-hmm. Or you don't have to deal with it. So you're not just a head coach, you're kind of like um, a brother a mentor figure, and all that wrapped into one. And I think the beauty of, say, and where I think um, you see some of the more successful IGR coaches who stuck around versus those who are one and done or things is that you don't come in treating, oh, this is just like any regular rugby team. A lot of these rugby teams are special because they are helping folks, not just Play rugby. I love it. Again, that's the main point, right? But you are affecting a lot of life changes, whether it's coming out, whether it's being comfortable with your own self, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, loving things, yourself. For the first loving time. yourself and seeing things. And so for me, that is the beauty of fog rugby, right? Especially uh, of things because again, you have folks where I'm, you know, I've been able to be participants and in weddings um, for close, close friends and fam, uh, they're like my family um, that I wouldn't have if I hadn't joined Fox Rugby, right? Straight or gay, um, everything in between. And it, it is the beauty of rugby in a way in itself. But the beauty of Fog Rugby is that we are helping people not just gain confidence on the field, but actually off the field. And so I think that's, that's, that's a wonderful um wonderful thing right and you can help people on their journeys whether it's a year like some folks we only are only able to stay a year but i get folks who come out all the time that was a great year i learned things about myself that i i I didn't know about and that they're happy that they did it and there's some who are like the the legends like denny who, who has stayed every you know from practice one Till till now, um, till last Wednesday, till last Wednesday, right? Not to say that um, old guys are the, the main part, but it helps for the new guys. It helps for a new person to see, oh, hey, I'm part of a family, right? And when you see some of the new clubs, right, um, you'll have a couple of new folks that come out. Great, it was a great um, season, onesie, twosies, but. It, they come and fall, right? I've been doing this for almost two decades of IGR. Um, outside, you know, things change. Things always change, but there's always the constant presence. Win, lose, or draw, it's uh, how strong some of the clubs can withstand it. So, like, uh, some of the folks, like, you know, the great Matt in Manchester, um, he's the, what I would say, the Danny X of that team. They mm-hmm. go alive and strong. Uh, just knowing that someone like him is there or London Steelers with their infrastructure that they built. Right. So I think you can help, you can help uh, motivate and it helps people. I mean, you've seen a lot of stories how uh, for folks 
who just first year or second year, gay rugby has helped their lives, changed their lives, um, straight or gay, and how it affects them. And so that's that's just a beauty. So if you're in your local town, go check out your IGR team because maybe it's not the same kind of rugby team uh, you are used to, but um, you might be you might be affecting someone's life in a different way. So. Next up, we have from episode eight, Paul Boggy talking about the moment when he harnessed the power of his own mind to finally quit his heroin addiction and believe he could after 13 relapses and the moment that he found hope. That really stuck with me, that line about having hope and not taking it for granted. What was it that made you say, okay, I need to, I need to get off this? Yeah, so there was there was many things through my life that you would perhaps would think that that would have been the pivotal point that I'm going to turn it around. So the dying through malnutrition, having a having a daughter, you know, and there's there's loads of there's loads of parts in my life. I relapsed thirteen times. Then I went and attended a course um, about the mind. Mm. Nothing to do with addiction whatsoever. It was to do about the mind and about the power, you know. Um, positive thinking, positive self-talk, um, believing in yourself, believing that things are a choice, and all this glass is half full stuff. Mm-hmm. And I used to think, that's absolutely rubbish. This guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. I'm a heroin addict because that's my destiny, and that's my choice, and I, my bed, and I lie in it. And I was always against it. I finished that course, I went back on drugs, and then 17 years ago, on the 14th of May, I woke up, something was different, I felt something was different, all my drugs were in the house, I used to be in a routine of taking them every morning, and this morning, I remember feeling different, I went up, I put my nose on the big mirror above the fireplace, I looked straight in my eyes, um, am I allowed to swear, am I allowed to curse? Fuck yeah. Oh right, cool, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's never the same when, when yeah you know, I know I know like try to explain what happened but uh-huh. without cursing so I put my nose on the mirror and I looked straight in my eyes I said don't fucking ask for heroin ever again because you're never getting it from that moment my life changed I had a future I, I began to dream and I was no longer thinking about dying I was thinking about what I was going to do with the rest of my life and that was amazing next up we have episode 11 featuring hong may discussing how meditation and breath work can be a very healthy outlet for emotional release which is a very useful thing for men in particular And I wanted to ask you about the the men in, in your organization and around some of the growth you've seen in them. I mean, have you seen any, any examples of, of men in the in the program who come through and really grow and become maybe more expressive or more comfortable in their own skin after doing the program? Definitely. I mean, I cannot say all men. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I mean, our living is very diverse, all backgrounds. Um, I I think doing the program for one guy helped release emotions, right? Sometimes 
Um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say any specific concept. Maybe some men are we held a lot of emotions through the, mm-hmm. the sky breath. All these toxins, all these emotions that bottle up in our system, causing anger, anxiety, all these mental health that could be with us, start releasing. So when they start releasing, what I my theory is that some of the men will be more empathetic, uh, more connected, and in fact, um, the person who introduced me to the program, I found him very motherly in some way, like very caretaking role that you never thought a man would like do that kind of work, but very like um, mother taking. So even our founder, um, Shishi Vaishankar, uh, so funny, like his voice sounds very gentle. I and mean, some of the people he's like, oh, what <laughs> is the person who's that voice? I was like, it's a man. <laughs> yeah, what's um, her name? <laughs> yeah, it's he's, he's very motherly. He he can be a mom. He can be a dad. He can be everything. And he's really an enlightened master. He's there to really take care of everyone and be there with every emotion. Next up from episode 13, we have my good friend, Libby, modeling the work that we are encouraging here by thinking about his relationship, areas of improvement, and how he can show up better in that relationship. So cheers to Lee for this little bit of insight. So I think the big one right now is, so I've been living with my girlfriend now, I think I think at least four years. And so I think one of the things that we were messing up on is like, the tone in which we talked with each other. And so one of the kind of the cues I've been trying to work on is like the tone, because I think it's very easy to fall out of that habit when you've been with someone for like a long time. And it's easy when like situations are stressful or less than ideal, which, you know, happens all the time. That kind of stuff, you know, is just very easy to build up and it just builds up anxiety, aggression, and like, you know, eventually I guess resentment which is, you know, pretty bad. And so I think tone is like something that I've been kind of, you know, trying to focus on a lot. That's actually funny enough. So I have two dogs now, Luke and Dean, uh, both lab mixes. And and so one of the things that we're working on with the dogs is the tone, the different ways in which we talk to them to reinforce habits. And I think that's like tone is such a good example of like a very small thing. You have an entire like conscious control over So I think, you know, Tone, one of the more stressful things in our lives right now are our two dogs, Luke and Dean. You know, I I was like, you know, do they cause me more stress to have them or less stress to have them? Just because they both have, you know, sets of behavioral issues that they've kind of, um, that we've inherited because they're both rescue dogs. So they're both kind of triggered by strollers, um, loud noises, scooters, that kind of stuff. And then Luke has a whole set of nemeses. So he has about like, you know, 10 to 15 dogs, 10 to 15 dogs that due to past issues, if he sees them, it's on site. He woke up and chose violence. You know, he, he goes crazy and it's, it's bad because then Dean gets set off. And so, right, we're just increasing the stress, right? Luke gets stressed and then Dean gets stressed, right? And so I think this is just kind of a perfect example too for people we're kind of on these walks, like I would, you know, get annoyed at Sam, you know, my partner, because she would, 
not respond in a way that I thought was like correct for the situation or not whatever. And like think, or I would basically get frustrated with the dogs and then that would rise the tension level in her because the way I'm saying things now, right. is just raising the tension level. And so I think it's just kind of like a spiral where, you know, everyone just gets tense with each other, right. People talk about tense rooms, right. It's, you know, people can vibe off certain energies Right. There are certain emotions that I think are kind of like universal that people understand. And like, you know, so in this case, you know, the tone of the situation was set as negative and, and, you know, the dogs can't control it, you know, that much. Like we can train it in them, but you know what I mean? They don't, they can't make a conscious decision every time necessarily, or at least I'm not going to account for them that way. Um, but you know, Sam and I, in this situation, when the dogs are tense, we can choose to respond in a way that's way more positive, right? We're adults, we're trained grownups who've been practicing how to act for a long time. Like, and so what we should be able to do is both talk to each other in a way that's, you know, respectful. And I think more importantly, honestly, positive. Next up, we have Anthony Bush from episode 14, talking about how to create a set of lessons around identity and how to teach an understanding and conception of identity for individuals beginning to engage in diversity and inclusion work. So, so how do you how do you even start that whole process of, of building out and wrapping your head around creating a, a curriculum for for a school like that? Yeah, great question. So I was thinking about like what is the roadmap to cultural competency and fluency if if you're engaging in social justice work or you have any interest in that, where do you start? And really, it is about self, like really learning bias. What is your worldview? How does it shape your perspective on political thoughts, beliefs, patterns, right? How do you show up in the world? When you do show up in the world, who do you center? Who do you decenter? And I think kind of getting a, the, your feet wet in terms of where you are in kind of this process, right? How have you been socialized to view the world, take up space in the world? What are you privileged by? What are you, you know, challenged by or, or, um, maybe what are some of your oppressions? What are the aspects of your identity, right? So your class, race, gender, sexuality, gender, uh, performance or identity, all of that kind of factors in. And then you kind of build a, Scope and sequence of questionings between what does power look like within this setting of a community or this portion of an identity? If we're talking about race, we're talking about gender. What does disadvantage or oppression look like? And then what is the history of it? Right. And then from there, talking about how it manifests in present day. So once you start with the unconscious bias piece and kind of getting your understanding of how you show up in the world, then you can really utilize the concepts of power, privilege and oppression and the history of that. And also the present day examples to build out different units. So we start with race because clearly that's it's the most accessible one when you're thinking mm-hmm. about how it shows up in the United States, specifically in, in Western world, right? Via transatlantic slave trade and things like that. And it also is the only identity marker that intersects with each and every single other one that we're talking about. And so I think through that line, you kind of figure out, well, what is the fluency development that our community needs, right? We were, I was teaching in an all black and brown setting when the curriculum was developed. So we started with race, um, then we went with gender and then sexuality and then class. And then when you go through those few, you try to figure out, well, what else can can grab them to think about power, right? And I think building a, a scope and sequence off of socialized identities is is really that that blueprint. But the sequence of it, of it can, can be a little tricky, right? So it was a lot of creative ideas. I was bouncing back and forth with uh, one of my friends, Skylar, um, who was really helping me kind of just as a thought partner develop the curriculum. And then, of course, seeking feedback from women, obviously seeking pe- feedback from some students even. Um, but I think my 
experience in American studies kind of gave me a deeper insight into kind of the appropriate pacing and sequencing of which identity markers we really wanted to center. And then the goal of it, right, is intersectionality, which is a concept talking about how do all of my identities kind of fold into each other that make up who I am and how I show up in the world. So you actually bring it back to that unconscious bias piece. But now you have all of the other aspects of your identity, or at least a window into some of them, the history of it, how it's been privileged with power um, or how it's been, yeah, how it's been privileged with power, how it's been oppressed potentially, depending on how you identify. And then also what does it look like in today's society? And I think that roadmap for me was a very clear path to develop a curriculum that was more accessible for students. I think it's much harder when you're engaging colleagues or professional people like who are adults, simply because everyone's fluency is at very different places and everyone's investment is in very different places, right? Mm -hmm. And so matching that scope and sequence is much more challenging. Next up from episode 24, the first in the musician series, we have my friend Michael talking about his journey of self-acceptance and coming to love himself and pushing through the internalized homophobia of our culture in a really beautiful and honest way. You know, I, I only went to therapy. Like I only started going to therapy. Uh, I think I was 22. And prior to that, I think I hadn't really had any, you know, besides the conversations with friends or peers or, uh, you know, the, the queer people I had the pleasure of meeting in college, uh, whether that be in New York or elsewhere, I hadn't really like dove too deep into my own. Um, and that really sort of was when I realized like how much internalized homophobia I do have. Yeah. And it's really, really tough. I think, I don't know, man, like I could talk about this for like ever and ever and ever and ever. And I think something that I'm having a really difficult time with right now is that community of people finding a spot for myself within it. I mean, the queer community, Mm -hmm. like where do I belong? And then I think also fostering my own communities. It's weird to see friends from high school sometimes. And like, I'm not the same person that I like that I am. And like, you know, I kind of, I want to be unabashedly gay and like, I like who I am, which is crazy. (laughs) Excuse me, which took a couple of years, but I don't know. I think similar to you, I grew up both my parents are Jersey from New Jersey and grew up in Jersey city and union city. And I think the mentality that I always grew up with was just like very much that. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're unfamiliar with the New Jersey mentality, it's pretty wild. You just don't really give a fuck. <laughs> and I think for me, it just, it, it, it's sad. It really was a defense mechanism for like a really, really, really long time. It was just the same way that you say you can't ruffle my feathers. I think I would say that, to people and like act that way. But like internally, I definitely wasn't feeling that or um, really believing it. Um, and then I think over time, I, it's man, like I just hang out with the people I want to hang out with that make me feel really, really good and like mm-hmm. lift me up. And that's the most important thing. And I, over the years have just started to like ingest more queer culture, um, whether that be, you know, queer podcasts or queer artists or reading queer literature or queer history. Cause that's, that's actually really important too. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that it's just normalizing it. And then when I like realized that being gay isn't weird or like out of the, out of the ordinary, um, what up? Shout out to the gays listening right now. This one's for you. <laughs> 
then then I think my authentic self kind of like really took shape. Like it was less of a performance um, and was more of like, no, this is like who I am. Next up, we have Robert Riopelle talking about a practice that he and his wife used to facilitate healthy communication and healthy conflict. Well, you know, I I look at the influences in my life. So as an example, my mom and my dad, they met. Six weeks later, they got married. And they were married for 42 years before my mom passed away. And so I watched how they did their relationship. Um, And then from my siblings, I'm the youngest of four, I watched my um, brother that's closest to me in age. He's now uh, been through two marriages. My oldest brother's been through three marriages. And my sister's on her eighth marriage. So I've learned how not to do relationships from them. So because you can learn from every situation, right? And one of the practices that my wife and I have is if it gets to that stage where we just cannot see eye to eye and we're so both at the boiling point and we're just, you know, just no matter what the other person says, it's pissing us off. Then one of our commitments to each other is we will actually sit down and we have it. And, and it's a, it, this is a context that's set in place. This is an agreement that's set in place that when we get to this stage and we say it's time to sit down and, and just hash it out. So if I'm sitting across from you and you have something on your mind, most arguments is the people battling back and forth, trying to prove why they're right and trying to overtalk the other person. The way this practice works is you will say what's on your mind in that moment. And I just listen. When you're done, you say you're done. And I'm not trying to fight back. I'm not trying to cut you off. I just sit there and let you keep talking until you're done, no matter how long that is done. When you're complete and you say done, now it's my turn. And it's the same thing. I'll go for as long as I need to, to get it all out. And until I'm finished talking, my wife just listens. And at first it could go like 20 minutes before the other person lets this, the, you know each other to talk. But as you go back and forth, all of a sudden the energy starts to dissipate and it gets shorter and shorter. And also the mind for whatever reason starts to open up. And because when you're in the moment trying to think of what to say while they're talking, you're not really actually present with them. Because you're trying to remember why are they bringing this up now? What really happened? Bullshit, this is what. But if you're sitting there and actually listening, when it's your turn to talk, now, you know, a lot of the stuff you're trying to think of is gone because you're truly present and you're speaking your truth in the moment. And so it may be longer interaction back and forth in the beginning, but also it gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter till all of a sudden you're like, and you feel that energy release and let go. And now you can truly get to the root of what's actually causing the problem. And that's when you can actually solve the problem and you you may not be able to fix it, but at least in that moment, you might be able to come to an agreement like, okay, I get it. We're going to agree to disagree as an example, but I do see your point of view and I'll do my best to honor that that's your perspective and not try and fight against it. And I hope that makes sense. And it's a practice that it takes practice because our automatic reaction is, if my wife is upset and yelling at me, I want to be able to defend. I want to 
tell her why she's wrong, why that's incorrect. But if I have the courage to just listen, let her get it out, knowing I'm going to have my turn to let my energy out, it it becomes a very healthy way of communicating. Next from episode 28, we have Dr. Christian Heim discussing why it's okay to be a man. There are actually a lot of differences between young men and older men. However, there are a lot of similarities as well. Anger has just always been a special emotion for men, right? Because, <laughs> yeah, because let, let's face it, Thomas, we all want to change the world, all right? We all actually want to get out there and make it a better place to, to, to make some sort of a difference. And if we can't do that, if we're not allowed to do that, we get frustrated and this can get us really angry. Uh, but a couple of differences between older men and younger men. Um, older men grew up in a time when they didn't have the internet, which means that uh, they're used to, let's say, sitting with feelings or going outside of themselves to do stuff, right? Uh, so even just going for a walk, going for a bike ride, going for a jog, all that sort of stuff. I know that younger men do this as well, all right, but not to the extent. You've always got a screen kind of, calling out your name, saying, come here. And so that becomes part of the brain's hard wiring. And that's really difficult. And the other, the other difficult thing uh, is it's like there's a message coming to younger men that there's something wrong with being a male. And, Thomas, there isn't. There isn't. According to evolutionary principles, we became male and female out of survival needs to propagate our species for the good of us all. That means it's actually good to be a male just as it's good to be a female and everything else in between, all right? So we're not excluding <laughs> anything. We're not excluding anything, but we're saying sort of whoever you are, that's okay. But there's this feeling that it's not okay to be competitive. It's not okay to have aggressive drives. And the thing is that when a um, young male finds out that they do have aggressive drives, they think, oh, no, there's something wrong with this, rather than saying, okay, how am I going to channel this usefully? What can I point myself into that will have a good outcome? Lastly, we have T. Keaton Woods from episode 32 talking about why she's drawn to and has created a career around supporting and re-energizing, refocusing creatives, founders, and women entrepreneurs, particularly. So the another element that you mentioned of your practice is with creatives and founders. Mm -hmm. I saw on your website, also female founders in particular. Yep. So what about those uh, identity traits or, uh, yeah, identities uh, inspire you? <laughs> So his laughter now, everybody, is because I just got very giddy because I love talking about this and these people. Um, I realize the thing that's most important to me is the dreamers, right? Uh, those people who say, oh, what's next? And then go out and try to get there. Um, 
you know, when they hear a car going over a grate, they hear a beat to a song. Um, They just perceive the world differently. Mm -hmm. A lot of times what happens is that somebody will then offer them money to start a project or management or be an agent for them. And then try to quash all of that beautiful dreaming magic and weirdness. And so the volume gets super turned down on the authentic creative spark of those individuals. So I call the work that I do with them is rehoming them to their authentic creative spirit. Um, The reason they started founding, creating, writing, singing, all of those things Um, The personality traits that tend to come up consistently and even more so with female founders and artists and creatives is the amount of times I talk about imposter syndrome. Mm. And my response is, that's not a thing. (laughs) Let's get to the underlying thing about what's really what you're really feeling. And that's it, folks. Thanks so much for coming along for the ride as we look back on some of the high moments and great conversations from 2021. We're going to do awesome things this year. I have a great feeling about where this program is going to go. And I hope that you have found it to be beneficial, insightful, inspirational, and in some way benefiting your your life. And I hope you come keep coming back for more and more episodes and we'll grow this thing together. So that's all for now. We'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau podcast.